If, like us at Mind Matters News, you keep an ear to the ground for any stories in the world of artificial intelligence, then you've likely heard the ongoing controversy about whether Google's chatbot Lambda is sentient or not. To make a short story even shorter, it's not. As we've discussed in the past, sentience and other mental qualities like creativity, qualities that would contribute to what researchers call artificial general intelligence, cannot be reduced to any pure algorithmic form needed for incorporation in an AI. This week, we have Samuel Haug and Justin Bowie joining us as we discuss the problems with pursuing artificial general intelligence and how difficult it can be to account for everything that could go wrong with such complex AI systems. Enjoy! Greetings, this is Mind Matter News, and I am your full-figured host, Robert J. Marks. You know, Isaac Newton was the genius that founded classical physics. He also invented calculus. He also did other things. Newton was a student of the Bible, specifically Bible prophecy, and he wrote extensively on his research. Newton also dabbled in alchemy. Now, most think of alchemy as the quest to turn lead into gold, but there's a lot more to alchemy than doing this. Some in alchemy pursued creation of a so-called homunculus a homunculus is a little person created in a test tube, kind of like. If you watch the 1935 classic monster movie, The Bride of Frankenstein, you see a, a scene where the mad scientist, Dr. Pretorius, shows off his homunculi. I think that's the plural of homunculus. He shows off his uh, homunculi to Henry Frankenstein. Uh, no one to date has created the alchemist's dream of a homunculus, and if you exclude maybe cloning, I don't think that they probably ever will. The search for the homunculus today has been replaced by a search for artificial general intelligence, or AGI, artificial general intelligence. Terms keep changing in a rapidly evolving field. AGI used to be called hard artificial intelligence. There's some that actually have a split uh, definition, but we, we're just going to stick with art of artificial general intelligence. Uh, by any name, the search for artificial general intelligence will prove as useless as the search for the homunculus. Not everybody shares this opinion. That includes Elon Musk, that includes Stephen Hawking, but even so, there is a growing evidence AGI will never be achieved. What does AGI do? AGI seeks to duplicate and exceed what you and I do. If artificial general intelligence is achieved, some say we will become pits of computers. There are some who worry that AI will begin to write better and better AI. The point where AI becomes superior to humans is called the singularity by Google's Ray Kurzweil. If this happens, watch out. AI will write better software that writes better software that writes better software and an endless staircase of ever-increasing intelligence. And there are smart people who believe this will happen. But AGI is not happening, and there's growing evidence it never will. AI can be written to mimic many human traits, but there are some human characteristics that will never be duplicated by AI. We cover this a lot on Mind Matters News. Properly defined, these include these properties that will never be achieved, include creativity, sentience, and understanding. In fact, AI seems to be going in the opposite way. More and more human expertise is being folded into the AI software. The added intelligence in AI is not due to AI, 
but is due to human creativity and ingenuity infused in the software by the programmer. To talk about these things, our guest today is Dr. Justin Bowie. Justin is a freshly mined PhD from my research group at Baylor University, and he specializes in, among other things, artificial intelligence and deep learning. Justin, welcome. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on the show, Bob. Great. Uh, Before we go into some trends in artificial intelligence, what I'd like to do is describe the playing field that you have been watching. And I think anybody that is involved in the development of artificial intelligence is familiar with these resources. There is, of course, the literature, and there's a vast literature in AI. But in computer software, there's a heck of a lot more incredible resources. There there, there are incredible resources available on the web, many related to AI. And the incredible part is most of these are free. So first, let's talk about the software, Justin. AI software is widely available. It's free and it's powerful. It's available to anyone on the net. Could you go through some of the AI software and some of the things that this AI software that's available for free does? Yeah, sure. It's 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 an interesting playing space. Uh, you know, there, it, it seems like every day there's a new tool that comes out that makes everybody's lives just a little bit easier. You know, the the big ones, of course, are, are PyTorch and TensorFlow, both being driven by by Facebook and Google, respectively. Um, and they they make up, I, I believe it's it's upwards of of probably 75 to 80% of a lot of the machine learning systems out there, if not more. They just, they're very easy to use. It's, it's tremendous development and the amount of, of available resources associated with these tools is, is phenomenal. You know? um, and, the, and kind of going hand in hand with that is the use of kind of free web resources. A lot of systems out there provide free computational resources, basically virtual machines that anybody can sign up for and use. They can design, deploy, evaluate uh, any machine learning model that they would like. You know, and it's it's actually quite interesting to see how prevalent some of these systems have become. Yeah, this this is really interesting. One one of the fascinating things is the free available computation. AI, like uh, deep neural networks, for example, can take a long time to train. And uh, so you're you're crunching the computer again and again and again, and yet there is available fast software resources available on the web to allow you to do this in the cloud, and that's um, that, that that to me is just amazing that people are making this available for free. Uh, there's also something called fast AI. What what is fast AI? So fast AI is kind of a wrapper for PyTorch um, with a lot of pre-built models. Um, so it's it's meant for kind of rapid proof of concept testing, if you will. Uh, it takes advantage of a lot of transfer learning techniques where um, just an, you know, kind of normal, we'll call them everyday person, but really anybody can can pick up a, a Jupyter notebook or, you know, a little bit of Python code and follow along on one of their tutorials and effectively deploy like a classification model or a regression model. Uh, it's really meant to help speed up the initial proof of concept for a lot of these model development processes. It's kind of an interface in a way, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I think I think a good way to, to classify it would be a like a high level wrapper almost. But it, again, it lets you take advantage of some of the work that's already been done, and you know that ultimately cuts down on somebody's development cycle. So PyTorch, that the Py is for Python. Python is a computer language that's available for free. Everybody can use it, right? 
Correct. Yeah, it's a, yeah. Torch itself is actually built on Lua, um, which, for those that are perhaps more intimately familiar, is, is a scripting type language. And so PyTorch is, is you're right, the, the Python high-level wrapper for the Lua interface that, that is Torch. Okay. What sort of stuff can you do with all this free software? Um, maybe also specifically some of the stuff we see in the news today. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, the, all of these tools have high-level uh, code wrappers for um, doing custom layer development. So, you, of course, you've got convolutional layers, which, which for those that are familiar, go into convolutional neural networks. You have transformer layers, which are gaining popularity. And could, could I interrupt you just for a second? What is a wrapper uh, for the general audience here? Good question. So a wrapper is kind of just like a high-level function call. Uh, it's it's a chunk of code that that ultimately makes deploying something more complex very easy. You can think of it kind of as like a, a super function in a way. I see. So you might you might have software and you go build the pyramids and you click yes and the py- pyramids are built. Something very very big happens. Exactly. It'd be something like build a pyramid. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> okay. You know, all the all the hard stuff is done uh, under underneath the hood, so to speak. Okay, so you you were talking about some of the stuff that you can do uh, with all of this free available software and all of this free available computational space. Yeah. So, um, yeah, of course. So, so, like I mentioned previously, you have you have you know convolutional layers, you have recurrent layers, which are you know things like LTS, you know, LTSMs. Um, that add a little bit of memory, so to speak, to, to the neural network. Um, transformers, as I mentioned previously as well, um, and, and a whole bunch of combinations in between. Um, and it's with these high-level layer calls, if you will. Uh, it really lets you get creative with the architecture. Um, you, can, you can combine different techniques into this, I guess you can consider it an amalgamy of uh, different neuron types uh, with different inputs and outputs, and you can kind of create this this hydra-looking uh, system, if if you will, where it can take various inputs and create various outputs, and and, it, and it's really great because it it lends itself to um, this this creative model development through its flexibility, and both of these tools al- allow that to happen, and you kind of see this this competition back and forth. You know, it's it's been interesting to follow along as as these tools develop. You know, when I started doing a lot of my research, uh, TensorFlow 2.0 was was still relatively new. It was, I believe it was still in beta, actually. And uh, most recently, I believe they're they're up to stable release 2.6. Uh, PyTorch, I believe, in a similar fashion, was at about 1.2 at the time when I started my research. And, and most recently, their stable release is 1.9. So you're seeing some some pretty heavy iteration improvements in these tools. And uh, it's great because it's it's driving a lot of the the AI and machine learning development, you know, kind of going hand in hand with with deployment of these tools is you're seeing more and more of these free resources that you've mentioned before becoming available. Um, and, and I kind of view them as a, a mix of things. One, it, it gets the tools in the hands of people to experiment and, and to learn. Now, the interesting thing, th- this is available to anybody in the world. The, yep. our, all of our adversaries in the United States, at least politically, militarily, like China, Iran, can plug in, get this free software, and do all this artificial intelligence and do it all for free. Yeah, that, that's right. It's you know kind of a double-edged sword in a way. But uh, you know, I think in an, in an ideal world, anyways, what you're doing is you're providing the masses with the tools and the opportunities to to kind of push the envelope forward. And um, I think it's a good thing because it, it makes 
the accessibility and the learnability of the techniques, you know, much more grounded, uh, you know, whereas before it was pretty heavily academic and, and very computationally intense and required a lot of subject matter expertise, you know, a lot more of the innovation now is kind of who, who can get to the finish line first kind of deal. And so it should, it should, in a way, encourage some more competition. Uh, you know, there is one caveat, of course, the free resources is that they are constrained. Most systems, you're typically limited to a fixed number of training or running hours. You get a fixed amount of memory, which uh, if you think about, you know, I think most systems provide between two and 16 gigs of RAM to use, uh, which sounds like quite a bit. I mean, most people probably have 16 or 32 uh, gigs of RAM on their personal computers. But if you're loading a data set that contains, uh, you know, say 150 gigabytes of DICOM data, for example, uh, or other medical data. Well, that's that's not going to fit in memory, and, and you'll find out very quickly that these systems break. However, if, if you do have the resources of computation and memory by yourself, you can download the software and run it in your system with basically limitations which are totally dictated by your resources that you have locally right yeah that's correct um that's one of the nice things about the the open source uh tools is that you know if you if you want to build yourself a, a small super cluster and with a couple terabytes of ram and a whole bunch of processors you're of course welcome to do that and you have almost no limitations other than making sure that you have uh compatible drivers and and that all of your your system software plays nicely you know um I was thinking of some of the specific things in the news that can be done with this software. One of them is deep fakes. Can you do deep fake uh, images and videos with the software? You can, yeah. Um, in fact, there's uh, a system out there uh, called Kaggle, which which I believe we'll, we'll dive probably mention again. And oh yeah, let's let's talk about what what is Kaggle. So Kaggle's it's it's actually owned by Google. Uh, I believe they've acquired somewhat recently. And it's a open source platform that provides computational resources to uh, data scientists, machine learning engineers, but of course anyone has access to it. If you have an email, you can get access to it. Uh, and it, but it's a it's a website that allows people to post competitions. So there are a lot of design competitions uh, of various types. Um, so there's like image classification, like stock price prediction, housing price prediction, a couple of different things that kind of just highlight the industry in general. And um, they kind of have modernized the, the open source resource sharing, community-driven AI push, if you will. Uh, and it, it's been very interesting, you know, that I, I've spent some time perusing on their forums and reading through the discussions and taking a look at some of their competitions. And you know, people get very creative. It's kind of fun to watch as a spectator and, and see, you know, how people approach problems and, and you know, what, what techniques do they try? If, if things aren't successful, do people share that experience or they kind of brush it under the rug and move on? You know, I remember from a, uh, gosh, a long time ago that Netflix put out this competition to come up with software that it, when given user data, such as data from you or me, could figure out the sort of things we would like to watch. In other words, things to suggest for us to watch. And they offer big cash prizes for that. Um, Kaggle does this also, doesn't it? Yeah. So um, it's interesting because they're, they're more of a, a host system uh, where anybody 
could can throw a competition up there. Um, one example is uh, the NFL has a helmet detection competition going on right now. It's it's in cooperation with uh, Amazon Web Services. Okay, wait, NFL helmet detection? Yes, yeah. So what they're trying to do is develop a system that can detect and track helmet locations for players. Uh, and what, what they're really getting at is being able to detect illegal hits, like targeting, for example, um, by tracking helmets and, and detecting when there's helmet-to-helmet collision. So part of it's player safety, but they're looking at ways to automate this, right? Because you know, if you think about a, a human in the system, right, a referee has to watch how much of the field, right? Well, really all of it. Uh, so they miss some things from time to time. And when you think about it from a player safety perspective, you know, you want to be minimizing or ideally completely eliminating some of those some of those rough shots and the thought is that you know if you developed an ai system to be able to do that you could shift that burden um so to speak i see so this is an ongoing competition right now and do they supply data to train the neural network or the ai with yes they do um aws has provided several gigs of video files of image files um, they've even provided some example code from previous competitions, and uh, the the prize is is a hundred thousand dollars split across. I, I believe it's the top eight, but it's, it's it's a pretty large prize purse. And and I think if you follow the competition's history, because this is uh, several years in the running now, they wanted a system that could do everything, uh, but they pretty soon realized that getting a system that could do everything was pretty challenging. So they said, okay, let's let's dumb down the problem. Let's start with helmet recognition and helmet tracking. You know, if you can start with that, you know, you eventually you could build up to a system that could detect, you know, helmet to helmet collisions or, or you know stuff like that. And so uh, it, it kind of harkens quite nicely to the the AGI competition, right? So I think the thought was that the system would create this kind of like master referee that could watch every player on the field, track locations, detect illegal hits, etc. Uh, but people are realizing, well, turns out that's a lot harder than we thought. I can also see this being used by people such as neuroscientists to study the impact of these collisions on brain development. We had a guest in a podcast a, a while back named Yuri Daniloff, who was a, a neuroscientist did did just fascinating work. And he said his indication was that all football games were just terrible. And he refused to let his kids play football until his oldest son finally did get on a team. And I said, well, what happened? I thought you forbade it. He said, I was, I was outvoted. So his kid literally played football, but I could see tracking this in real time would be really interesting because you could measure, for example, the acceleration of the helmet. You could do the, um, but let me get a little nerdy here. I, I think of beginning physics. Everybody talks about distance, velocity, acceleration. And then I, I learned when I was working for Boeing that each one of those is related by a higher derivative in calculus. So you start with the distance, you get the velocity, you get the acceleration. And then what is the derivative of acceleration? It's something called jerk. And if your acceleration changes really quickly, you you have a jerk associated with you. And I could see being used with um, AGI in order to monitor jerk, which I think that neuroscientists would find very interesting in terms of uh, tracking potential brain damage. 
And then the cool part is the derivative of jerk is snap. The derivative of, of, of snap is crackle, and the derivative of the other one is pop. That sounds really, really strange, but they could also monitor snap, crackle, and pop. But the, the prize for this is $100,000. That's, that's not minimal. Who is involved in this? Is it universities? Is it companies? Is it both? You know, that's, that's the one thing um, about platforms like Kaggle is it, it really is anybody. Anybody who wants to participate can join. So uh, I think from my observation, it's a lot of individuals or, or you know, you can, you can actually join teams and, and coordinate across, across the world, really, if you'd like. There's several teams that are multinational. But um, it, it's really, you know, anybody's open to it. And I think the, the the larger thing to take away from that is it's it's crowdsourcing the development, so to speak. So you you can, in a way, fork up what sounds like a pretty significant amount of money, but in the grand scheme of things, from a company perspective, is relatively small, and get ex, uh, you know basically unrestricted access to the IP that's developed basically for for cheap, you know. Wow, that is really interesting. Th- these these are companies which are kind of, if you will, outsourcing their R&D to competitions and probably getting results a lot cheaper than hiring a bunch of experts and trying to tackle the problem, you know, locally. Uh, yeah, exactly. Wow. So that works very, very well. You know, one of the things you mentioned to me, Justin, which I I appreciate it. By the way, Kaggle is K-A-G-G-L-E. So it's kaggle.com for anybody that wants to take a look at it. You mentioned to me um, that in monitoring these things on Kaggle, that you saw not a an advancement of AGI, but in way a kind of reversal of the AGI. Could you could you repeat what you told me about that? Yeah, sure. I, I think to summarize it, you know, what we're seeing is, is like you said, it's a 180. You're you're really seeing almost this hyper specificity in a lot of the applications. Um, if you go through and you observe a lot of the competitions that have that have closed, where where many of the competitors have have shared their code, you see a lot of evidence of transfer learning. So of course, there, there's some network reuse and stuff. Wait, just 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 elaborate just a a second on um, transfer learning. Oh yeah, sh- sure. So uh, with transfer learning, you take an existing system, an existing neural network, and you uh, basically discard some of the weights and biases. So you take some of the some of the trained network and you you let it forget some of the information, uh, and then you apply it to a new a new data set. It's really common in like object detection and image classification networks, where with these very deep uh, neural networks, you have say maybe the bottom four or five layers, uh, the ones closest to the output, uh, they're kind of, they, they wipe their memory, so to speak, and train it on the new data. And so you have the the core detection layers uh, up top, which have been trained and tested and verified, uh, being reused, uh, but on a new set of data. Uh, it's, it's a pretty common technique, um, and it, it produces some really great results. And, and that's one of the things that you see a lot with some of the Kaggle competitions is like a VGG or a ResNet being used for for top layers, then maybe a little bit of customization on the on the on the bottom side. Here's the way I kind of understand transfer learning. Suppose that you had a neural network that was trained on dogs, that you were trained this neural network to detect dogs. And you would have to spend a heck of a lot of time figuring out this neural network and training this neural network to recognize dogs. Now you want to come along and you want to classify cats 
well, it turns out that, mm, you know, classifying cats is kind of similar to classifying dogs. So why would you have to go back and start again at scratch? Why couldn't you use part of that dog neural network to train the cat neural network? And the art of doing that is referred to, I believe, as transfer learning. Is, is that is that fair? Yeah, that, that's a great example. Um, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, hey, why reinvent the wheel when I have a system that gives me 85% of a wheel? And so, yeah, you're spot on. Okay, good, good. You know, despite all of these uh, challenges with AGI and your observation that it's kind of going the other way, maybe we're making waiting for a new theoretical breakthrough, which I don't think will ever be achieved. But nevertheless, there are people that believe that we are making steps towards AGI. And uh, there are those that believe that indeed this is going to happen. Now, George Gilder, who is one of the co-founders of Discovery Institute, and just a genius in terms of economic and business commentary and forecasting, says that this dream that these software engineers have is is something which could be called rapture of the nerds. <laughs> I like that because it takes it takes a lot of faith to believe that we're going to get there. One of these companies, which is just overtly into promoting this, is OpenAI. That's the company that bought us GPT-3, and they claim they are pursuing AGI. And I looked up their mission statement, and it included the following. This is, this is a quote. We will attempt to directly build safe and beneficial AGI, but we'll also consider our mission fulfilled if our work aids others to achieve this outcome. So they definitely believe in this. They have faith that computers will eventually develop AGI. I, I always thought that was very interesting. Now, you and I had talked a little bit about why these software engineers believe that AGI is is achievable. I mean, these are guys which are really, really intelligent, and they believe that uh, the AGI is indeed achievable. And one of the reasons, I think, is because in terms of AGI operations, such as understanding and creativity and sentience, that they don't understand it's not algorithmic. They, they haven't gotten to the computer science. And the word that I used for this was a so-called keyboard engineer. These are people that when they're looking for a solution, don't sit down and look at the theory. Rather, they go directly to the keyboard. You had some interesting comments on that. Could, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. It's it's one of those things that that uh, some of some of my colleagues and I have have jokingly referred to as, as Stack Overflow engineers. It's a, a very similar concept, right? But it's uh, uh, okay. Stack Overflow. That's a website, right? Correct. Yeah, it's a it's a forum where where uh, people can post errors or issues that they're having with their code, and, and it's kind of a, a community sourced solution uh, house, if you will. Um, but it, it's pretty funny because. Uh, some of the colleagues I've had throughout the years have have joked about, okay, hey, we just got this problem. Let me go. Let me go check Stack Overflow really quick. Uh, you know, chances are somebody's done it before. I'll just reuse it. You know, and so I think that feeds into into some of the the AGI belief as well, right? You know, oh well, you know, OpenAI has produced X Y Z uh, neural networks, and oh hey, you know, Google and Google's uh, brain team have published on ABC works. And, you know, if we can just, if we can start merging these together, you know, the system will just become kind of super intelligent. And, and 
you know, so I think in some regards, it's fed a lot by what people are observing from the major companies and, and some of the major influencers, like you had mentioned, Elon Musk. Uh, before, you know, you have some some very popular people that are that are promoting, dare I say, preaching some of these these ideas and beliefs, and um, people kind of latch onto that. You know, it was funny, you know, because when, when I think of HEI, you know, I kind of think of like How Nine Thousand or Skynet, or you know, for those of you that that are more into movies, more recent, you know, Ultron. You know, these systems that seemingly have limitless resources and infinite knowledge and obviously evil intentions. You know, I think that's one of the things that uh, helps capture people's attention and their, and their oh, sure, yeah. creativity as well. You know, it, but I think at the end of the day, Bob, like you said, it, it, you know, people just, they go straight to the keyboard. You know, they don't sit down, think about how to approach a problem. You know, how do we solve it from the theory perspective and then start deploying it? It's really more, well, okay, I need to go make a classifier that tells me the difference between kumquats and giraffes. And they just sit down and start coding. And so they, they import these things and download this software and use this software kind of as a black box without looking at the deeper theory of how it is created and the computer science of where where it came from and the, and the possibilities of doing uh, AGI in the future. They don't address some of the things we talk about on Mind Matters News. They don't address the Lovelace test for creativity, which has never been demonstrated in artificial intelligence. They don't talk about even simple um, counter arguments like Searle's Chinese room about understanding. And as a, resu- as a result of this, they're, I, I don't know, we're guessing here, aren't we? Yeah, in a way. Yeah, we're, we're, we're guessing, but it, it seems to me that they possibly don't understand, or at least maybe they've just blocked out this idea that AGI uh, can't be achieved. Um, really great points. Okay, any final comments? Well, yeah, actually, I, I did kind of want to build a little bit on that too. I think I think in some regards, uh, you know, AI and machine learning, they've, they've become catchphrases throughout the world where, you know, it, it, I used to joke that, you know, AI is, is very similar to the word synergies uh, in the business world, right? Synergies. Everybody wants synergies. Uh, the new thing is everybody wants machine learning. They don't necessarily understand what it is. It's kind of like you had said, it's a black box. Let's wave our hands over it. Let's see some results. Are they the results we want to see? Great. We now have machine learning. <laughs> and it's uh, it's not that easy. Um, you know. But I think a lot of the drive um, and the reason why a lot of keyboard engineers are uh, have a lot of success in, in their careers and, and gain a lot of influences. Um, they're able to produce those results, uh, which businesses see and they like, and um, it kind of feeds into this system of like, okay, hey, this person's achieved these results. This company's using machine learning. Well, maybe our company can use machine learning. Let's go do the same thing. And the focus all of a sudden becomes, you know, the, the material goal, right? Uh, a little bit less about. Let's create a, a, a perfect system. More about hey, let's create the system that provides us the best the best benefit. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that really feeds into to the keyboard engineer uh, mentality as well. Is is sometimes you don't get the freedom to sit down at a whiteboard and say, okay, hey, how do I how do I approach this problem from a theoretical standpoint, from a high level concept standpoint, before I start writing code? You know, typically it's I was just handed an assignment. I've got two weeks to do it. I'm going to go to my keyboard and and start writing some code. Okay, that's fascinating. You know, I think there's a little bit of um, walk back on the idea of AGI. 
I did a um, a interview with George Gilter, who is neighbors with Ray Kurzweil and good friends. Ray Kurzweil, of course, is the one that introduced the idea of the singularity and was a big proponent of AGI. And Gilder says he's noticed recently that Kurzweil has begun to backtrack a little bit on AGI and its uh, implementation. And the problems, I don't know, there's there's a bunch of problems associated with AGI. Uh, number one is in the arguments about it, people are using seductive semantics. They say AI will be creative or have understanding with or be sentient without really defining what these mean. Uh, they're using seductive semantics. And in order to discuss those, you have to, you have to be careful in defining them. So... Yeah, we'll see what happens, and I have little little faith that AGI will ever be achieved. And what I was going to say is that AGI has to be defined, and the way that we're defining is the ability to duplicate what human beings do. There will be a lot of stuff AGI or artificial intelligence will do, which is a lot better and a lot more impressive than humans would be. Heck, that happened when they came out with the calculator. Calculator does a lot that that, uh, I'm unable to do and does it much more quickly. We're here to talk about AI. AI design ethics requires AI to do what is designed to do and no more. But problems pop up in complex systems, including any attempts at generating artificial general intelligence or AGI. AGI, whether you think it'll be achieved or not, will by necessity be complex. And the more complex a system, the more that it can go wrong. To talk about this today is our guest, um, PhD student Samuel Haug, and freshly minted PhD Dr. Justin Bowie. Both are members of my research group and are really smart. I really feel fortunate to have worked with them and to continue to work with them. So, Sam, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Okay, and you too, Justin. Yes, thank you very much for having me on. Okay, I I want to start out with something that rings of Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story. Either Sam or Justin, have you ever heard of Paul Harvey? I have not. No, I have not. Okay, That that shows I'm a senior citizen here. Paul Harvey had a series on the radio... Uh, very popular series, in fact, wrote a couple of books too, where he recounted a sometimes familiar story and then added a little twist at the end, kind of an Alfred Hitchcock twist at the end, which few or few, if anyone, had ever heard about. Uh, and the twist at the end was the rest of the story. It was a little elaboration on the story that nobody expected. We're going to do this today with some popular AI stories. And the twist is going to be something not well known about how AI failed. These failures called unexpected contingencies are our rest of the story. Uh, And so it will illustrate some of the shortcomings of AI and illustrate this idea of unintended contingencies, which we want to talk about in the podcast. We'll start out with some simple examples, and then we'll get more serious cases involving human life. The list is from a peer-reviewed paper that Sam and I wrote with Bill Dembski, and it's a peer-reviewed paper in the IEEE Transactions on Systems, Man, and Cybernetics, and we'll make a link to that available in the podcast notes. Uh, So let's do the following. I'll tell a story, and Sam, I'd like you to give the rest of the story, give the story's twist at the end. Is that okay? 
Yes. Yes, it is. Okay. Okay. First one, number one, Jeopardy is one of the most popular quiz shows in the history of television. Uh, Could AI win at Jeopardy? Well, it made big news. The answer is yes. In 2011, the world champions in Jeopardy took on an IBM computer program named Watson. Watson didn't respond to every answer correctly. It wasn't designed to do so. But in the end, playing the game Jeopardy, Watson recorded a resounding win over both of these other Jeopardy champions. And that made headlines, but people left out maybe a little quirk in Watson. So Sam, what's the, what's the next, what's the rest of the story on this? Yes. So in this particular contest, there was quite a a funny occurrence where um, uh, Alex Trebek asked one of the contestants uh, a question uh, and the answer that uh, the human contestant gave uh, was what are the 20s as uh, as the answer to that question, uh, which was noted as incorrect by Alex Trebek. And immediately afterwards, uh, Watson buzzed in and gave the exact same response. What are the 20s? And Obviously, this answer was incorrect because uh, it was just uh, revealed to be incorrect. And this was something that uh, the programmers of Watson did not did not foresee. Yeah, this was an unintended contingency. I imagine when the Watson programmers heard this duplicate response, they facepalmed and they go, oh my gosh, that was such an obvious thing we could have put into the software but chose not to do. Uh, just fascinating. Uh, you know, Watson had great plans for itself in the field of medicine after it premiered on Jeopardy! But it failed. The idea was this. There are just hundreds and thousands of different papers published in the medical field. And wouldn't it be wonderful if Watson could mine all of this data, which which was published in the medical field, and then based on a query from a physician who gave symptoms and details about the case they were dealing with, was able to respond with a list of papers relevant to what what was happening. This would save the doctor from wading through thousands of papers in the, in, in the literature. Watson contracted with medical research uh, group and hospital, MD Anderson, but after a while, MD Anderson just fired Watson. It just wasn't doing the job. And in fact, we listed this as the number one in the top 10 AI exaggerations, hyperbole, and failures in the year 2018. We listed this on Mind Matters News. Since then, IBM Watson's application expectations have even fallen further. And so we're not sure what's in the future for Watson, but we can see that uh, even though it was working well, it did have this unintended contingencies. Okay, example number two for the rest of the story, and this has to do with also another IBM piece of software. In 1997, IBM's Deep Blue software beat world champion Gary Kasparov at chess. This made world headlines. One of Deep Blue's moves was particularly curious. The unexpected move psychologically threw Kasparov off his game and he lost. Kasparov looked at the move and said, I can see no reason for why IBM Deep Blue made this particular move. And it blew him off his game psychologically. Uh, One of the chess experts who were commenting about the game said, quote, it was an incredibly refined move of defending while ahead to cut off any hint of counter moves. Well, you know, I, I guess skill in a game is like interpreting art in a painting. 
Some people will look at a painting and, and some will think this is great art and others will say this looks like a kid's finger painting. And that was indeed the case for this um, incredibly educated commentator. So the interesting thing is what is the rest of the story? So Sam, could you, could you kind of finish this out? What is the little twist on this deep blue move? Yes. So uh, <laughs> this one's also a little humorous here. Um, it turns out that over a decade after this match, uh, one of the uh, computer scientists who designed Deep Blue, uh, Murray Campbell, um, he confessed that the move that Deep Blue made that threw Kasparov off his game uh, was a random move that Deep Blue had chosen uh, because Deep Blue was unable to choose a good move. And so he just chose one at random. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, I think one of the quotes from Murray is Kasparov had concluded the counterintuitive play must be a sign of superior intelligence. He had never considered that it was simply a bug in the code. So I, I, that that was that was just a fascinating sideline of the rest of the story about Kasparov being beaten by IBM Deep Blue. Okay, third story for the rest of the story. A deep convolutional neural network was trained to detect wolves. Now, deep convolutional neural networks, they do make mistakes in their classification. That's just the way that it works. But this one incorrectly classified a husky dog as a wolf. And so the designers of the code went in and did some forensics. And they found out that this was a fluke of the neural network. What, what, what happened here, Sam? What was the rest of the story? Yes, so uh, <laughs> uh, this seems to be a theme of some humor in these stories. Um, the uh, the neural network in this particular instance had not been training on the features of the animals that it was classifying, uh, but it had picking up on uh, the fact that all of the wolf pictures that it was fed as training data had snow in the background, and all of the dog pictures that it was given as training data uh, did not have snow. And so the neural network had not learned anything about the features of these animals, uh, but had just learned to detect the presence of snow. That is really incredible. Justin, have, have you found out that this is something that which can happen in deep convolutional neural networks? Have you ever bumped across it? Yeah, it, it's pretty, it is pretty comical when you see things like that. It, it, it kind of goes hand in hand with how the network's developed and, and how it's trained. Uh, you know, it takes some very careful thought and pr preparation to uh, not only design uh, a neural network, but to train it. And in fact, you know, it, it's, it's often said that the 90% of a system's value is in its training and input data, right? Data is everything. Garbage in equals garbage out. And it's funny, I, I, I chuckle when I hear about that story, but, you know, just for, for kicks, a couple weeks ago, I built uh, a simple little convolutional neural network to uh, classify cats and dogs. Uh, it did so with, with, with really good accuracy. I think it was in the order of like 97, 98%. Um, and then for, for, for laughs, uh, I fed it a piece of fruit. I, I fed it an image of a, of a kumquat. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it turns out uh, kumquats are a lot like dogs, apparently. <laughs> so there's some... Yeah, just some oddities, some peculiarities that that go into developing these systems. And it, again, it's a garbage in is garbage out. And if you're not thinking about some of these contingencies, you may never come across them. That's incredible. Okay, thank you. Uh, okay, story number four for the rest of the story uh, that we're talking about. 
self-driving cars are still under development and despite promises are still very far away from a level five, which a level five is a self-driving car doing what a human can do. So self-driving cars in early development were trained to watch out for things like pedestrians, deer, and road debris. You don't want to hit a pedestrian. You don't want to hit a deer. You don't want to run over road debris. This worked out most of the time, but um, there were some serious flaws, at least in this early development. So Sam, what's the rest of the story here? Yes. So this one, there's a very serious side effect that happened uh, in 2018. Uh, An Uber self-driving car in Tempe, Arizona actually struck and killed a pedestrian uh, because it was unable to correctly classify this pedestrian as a pedestrian and as such did nothing to avoid the collision. Um, One of the engineers uh, that worked on this self-driving car uh, thinks that the, the vehicle was able to see the pedestrian, but that it was not able to correctly identify it and avoid it. And it's just a, a very, very sad uh, occurrence of a, an unexpected contingency. So I think the bottom line here is when AI involves human life and the potential death of a human being, you have to be very, very careful about unintended contingencies. I also think that early in the, uh, early in the development of self-driving cars, that um, windblown plastic bags were often interpreted as deer and stationary plastic bags were sometimes considered road debris. And so these are things which can be fixed. And we still have hope that this artificial intelligence that caused this death of this pedestrian in the Uber self-driving car can be corrected. But still, this was a a terrible unintended contingencies, and they remain a a major obstacle in the development of level five self-driving cars. Justin, do you have any comments on this? Yeah, it's it's one of those things that uh, I think the self-driving nature of, of cars is, is, is still quite a ways away. Um, there's a lot, a lot of systems out there that can reasonably identify pretty much every road hazard you know, with a high level of confidence. But uh, yeah, when it comes to human life, it's one of those things that you, you know, even a 3 4% chance of misclassification is catastrophic. Um, you know, so I, I think a lot more due diligence needs to be paid to classification and detection systems and, and um, it's something that uh, I think it's just going to take some time to tackle. Yeah. And, you know, Tesla keeps coming out with all these press releases that are doing great things, and they clearly are, are, are doing great things. One of our writers at Mind Matters News, uh, Jonathan Bartlett, comments extensively on Tesla's update. And I've talked to some people with some Tesla self-driving cars. They can take their hands off the steering wheel for a while, but Tesla will warn them after a while. It says, you know, your hands haven't been on the steering wheel for a while. Let's see them. And so they're not ready to go to totally autonomous self-driving cars as of yet. Okay, here is the the fifth story. And the stories are getting more and more serious now. We started out with little things like Jeopardy, having IBM Watson repeat an answer. That was That was a little curious thing. We just got done with talking about how Uber, the self-driving car, would um, uh, kill people. And now we're going to get to something which is very serious. It's a complex system that could have caused millions of deaths. Let me give you an example. Or let me give you the story, I should say. During the height of the Cold War, 
the U.S. and the Soviet Union were existing on the political knife edge of something called mutually assured destruction or MAD. Uh, the idea was is that if the United States blew up Soviet Russia, then Soviet Russia would blow up the United States and both of the countries would be flat and glow in the dark. In order to play this terrible game a little bit more intelligently, the Soviets deployed a satellite early warning system called OKO, O-K-O, and OKO's job was to watch for incoming missiles fired from the United States. On September 26, 1983, OKO detected incoming missiles. At a military base outside of Moscow, sirens blared and the Soviet brass was told by OKU to launch a thermonuclear counterstrike against the United States. Doing so would result in millions being killed. The officer in charge, Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov, looked at these incoming missiles and he felt that something was fishy. It just didn't feel right. The United States would not launch a preemptive strike doing this sort of strategy. So after informing his superiors of his hunch that Oko was not operating correctly, Petrov did not obey the Oku order. Upon further investigation, Oku was found to have mistakenly interpreted sun reflecting off of clouds as incoming U.S. missiles. In other words, these, these signals were simply the sun reflecting off of clouds. There was no U.S. missile attack, and Petrov's skepticism of Oko's alarm may have saved millions of lives. So we've gone from the very innocent to the very serious of what happens with AI unintended contingencies. Unexpected contingencies from complex AI can become more and more serious, as we've seen. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I play Alexa, and when you can't get Alexa to play a song you want, it's annoying but it doesn't cost any human lives. On the other end of the spectrum, killer self-driving cars and detectors of thermonuclear strikes can't be allowed to make mistakes. If they do, lives will be lost. In the examples that Sam and I have gone through, we, we have run the gambit from the very innocent to the very serious. The name of the paper which this is outlined in is called Exponential Contingency Explosion, colon, Implications for Artificial General Intelligence. It's by Sam, William Dembski, and me, and it appears in the peer-reviewed AI journal IEEE Transactions on Systems, Man, and Cybernetics, and Sam is the first author. Now, in that paper, we also do a bit of math. We show that the number of contingencies can increase exponentially with respect to the system complexity. The number of contingencies can become so numerous that they cannot all be looked at individually. This is troubling. This is not good news for AGI, which by its very nature must be very complex. We'll explore this exponential explosion of contingency increases as complexity increases linearly next on Mind Matters News. You know, I recently vetoed a family member's suggestion that we put a lock on our home that could be opened using a cell phone app. I didn't want it. Why? There was just too much that could go wrong. An old-fashioned key lock is simple and reliable. I was unsure about cell phone apps and haven't had the best of luck with some of them. This is a problem with complex systems. The more complex the system, the more it can go wrong. 
Artificial general intelligence, or AGI, will be complex. For all the stuff it's expected to do, it has to be complex. And as complexity increases linearly, the way things that can go wrong increases exponentially. This is especially concerning when human life is involved. We talked about this with Uber killing a pedestrian and also the Soviet OCO saying that the United States was attacking the Soviet Union with thermonuclear missiles. Sam, you were the first author on a peer-reviewed paper that showed the reasoning behind this exponential explosion of, uh, of, of contingencies. Can you explain in as simple a way as possible why contingencies increase exponentially as the complexity of a system increases linearly? This this explanation is probably best illustrated by example. So uh, here, let's consider a washing machine. And we're going to have a very simple washing machine. All it does is it has two settings. It either washes the clothes for a long time or it washes the clothes for a short time. In addition to those two settings, it only has one singular sensor uh, to figure out uh, how long it should wash the clothes. Uh, And this sensor is going to measure how heavy the load is. Um, And so in this very simple example, there is only one sensor involved that is keeping track of one variable in our design project. And it yields two possible outcomes, either washing for a not long time or washing for a long time. Uh, So if this washing machine is to be correctly designed uh, to handle these loads well, all that needs to happen is uh, that the the washing machine needs to be tested uh, for a heavy load and a light load. And if it handles both of those scenarios correctly, then you have designed the perfect washer uh, for the design project you have. And in this particular instance, in the design process, uh, the assumption is that you'll begin with a prototype, you will test that prototype to see how well it handles the uh, contingencies that you're expecting. Uh, And if it handles those contingencies well, you're done with your design process. Uh, If it is not, then you'll need to make some tweaks to make sure that it does. Um, And so this is going to be kind of the framework uh, that we we use in the paper uh, to discuss complexity of design. And now let's talk about just a, a slightly more complex example. So we still have this same washer. It is still only able to discern a few uh, variables using its sensor. And now we're going to add one additional sensor, uh, which is how dirty the load is, which is um, the commonly referred to measure is turbidity. Um, So if it is a very turbid load, uh, it's very dirty. And so you'd need to wash it also for a long time. Uh, And if it is not turbid, if it's a very clear water uh, in the washing machine, then you don't need to wash it for as long. And you can do this by simply putting a something like an LED light and seeing how much attenuation there is from the light to the sensor. And the more turbid the water, the more attenuation is going to be given, right? Yes. So you've, you've added a sensor. Okay, go ahead. Yes. So here, uh, our design is getting, is getting a little bit more complex. Now we have, instead of two possible input loads, we have four possible input loads. We could have a light clear load, we could have a light turbid load, a heavy clear load, heavy turbid load. Um, And so now we have increased, we have doubled the number of possible input loads uh, that we can put into our washer. Uh, And we'll begin to refer to these possible inputs as contingencies, uh, because that is what they end up being uh, in in the design process. 
So in order to now design the perfect washer for this uh, this washer that now has two sensors, you need to test four possible loads. And if this washer correctly handles all four of those loads, then you've, you've finished your job. You have designed uh, the perfect washer for this example. And we, we begin to see here, as we add variables, each time we add a variable, uh, and in this case, uh, each of the sensors only has an on or an off reading, uh, so there's no uh, scale or range of values. Uh, but so in this case, every variable you add doubles the number of contingencies uh, that your washer will need to account for. Um, and to give you a little bit of a numerical estimate of, of what this does, if we increase the number of sensors on this washing machine to 20 sensors, so it, it keeps track of 20 different variables, so heaviness would be one, turbidity would be one, it could go through any number of other possible examples. With a still very simple system with only 20 sensors, each one can only be on or off. There's no range of inputs for these sensors. There are already over a million uh, contingencies that you would need to design your washer for. Wow. Uh, which which is just incredible. Looking at a, a little bit more complex system of uh, an image recognition software, um, for example, those one of them would be the uh, the wolf and dog classification that we talked about last time, where you feed a neural network a, a picture of either a dog or a wolf, and it tells you uh, which it is. If you wanted to fully characterize uh, the performance of this system, you would have to test every single combination of pixels uh, in the image size that it's going to be fed. So for a, a small 100 by 100 pixel image, uh, that's 10,000 pixels that you need to test. And each of those pixels has 256 gray levels and three color choices, uh, which is the, the RGB, which is red, green, and blue values for each pixel. And in this still relatively small design example, uh, if you wanted to fully test the, the performance of any um, image classification software you're designing, you would have to test it 10 to the 29,000 times, um, which that number is, is so large, it's difficult to imagine. So as a, a bit of a, a ballpark estimate here, um, the number of atoms in the known universe is estimated to be around 10 to the 80th which is an incredibly large number, but the number of contingencies with this small 100 by 100 image is just unfathomably larger than that, 10 to the 29,000th power, um, which is just bigger than anything we could probably imagine. As, as we say in Texas, it's bigger in Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It, it's, just, it's just an enormous, enormous number. Now, of course, I think that testing all possible images, um, you know, would probably not be wise. And we're going to get, we're going to talk later about how you reduce these number of contingencies in order by reducing the problem a little bit. So that, that was an excellent example. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. You know, software engineers want to design systems like AI to avoid the problems of the contingency explosion that you just talked about. For example, the image. We wouldn't want to do all of the 10 to the big, big number um, tests. So what are some ways to avoid unintended contingencies? That's a good question. Um, so one of the primary ways that we can uh, mitigate these effects of uh, the exploding contingencies is with uh, what we call domain expertise. 
um, which is a designer's very intimate knowledge with uh, the design that he's creating. So for example, in the area area of uh, self-driving cars, which are extremely complex, um, some domain expertise there might be familiarity with traffic laws, familiarity with the physics of acceleration and braking and turning and such. So domain expertise is just just ground level knowledge of uh, the environments that you're going to be placing your design in. Uh, and in the example of the image uh, recognition uh, design, some domain expertise there might be in recognizing that your image process or your image recognition software will not be exposed to random static noise, for example. Um, and so it may not be as important for you to test all of the possible combinations of static noise uh, for your image, but to focus on the images that will probably be presented to your uh, to your design, such as you know pictures of wolves and pictures of dogs, and to make sure that those are classified correctly. That's uh, that's so that's domain expertise. Okay, you know, I, I use this example a lot. I used it in a podcast with um, Ola Hersher and Daniel Diaz. But one of the great illustrations of the need for domain expertise is Formula 409. Uh, have either of you heard of Formula 409? The cleaning solution? The cleaning solution. Okay. You know, I asked I ask Daniel, who is from Colombia, and I asked uh, Ola, who is from Sweden, if they had ever heard of it. And they said, no, no, no. They must use something different. Well, the reason the Formula 409 is labeled Formula 409 is it took four, 409 experiments in order to design that final result. And that required domain expertise. I'm sure it was done by chemists. I'm sure it wasn't done by junior high students, for example. And in fact, it was done by a total novice, it would be called Formula 2,642,000 or something like that. And so, yeah, domain expertise really can be used as a technique to reduce the unintended contingencies. And um, that's that's what they did. In fact, this is very interesting. We, we, we know about Edison testing thousands of different filaments when he generated the, the light bulb. And Tesla, who was kind of a nemesis of Edison, came along and he dissed Edison. He said, you, would, you don't need to test all these 10,000 different combinations of, of filaments. If you just had a little bit of book learning, you could get this down to, you know, 100 or 200. Because some of the things that Edison was testing, Tesla considered kind of stupid. So that's another example of the need of domain expertise. Another one is WD-40 that I like to use, which is water displacement system mastered at the 40th try. And this was done by an industrial chemist. I think his name was Larson. And if he had not had domain expertise, we would be using WD-5 you know, million or something like that. So in order to test these contingencies, in order to do good design, if you will, we need this, um, this expertise. And that's something which is really, really important. Justin, you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, kind of, kind of like we said, you know, the the, the addition of, of subject matter expertise really, really does reduce reduce the complexity of things. You know, I think a lot to my research tied a lot with with image recognition and classification, and um, you know, some of the some of the techniques that are implemented in a lot of the larger scale systems deal a lot more with traditional computer vision techniques, you know, histogram correction, color matching and correction, image resizing and stuff like that. It, it uh, kind of 
the more you can do on the front end in the pre-processing uh, side of things, the much more simple your your AI system can be. Uh, it, it aligns quite well with, with some of the increasing complexities that you all have documented in your paper. Yeah. Um, okay. Fascinating stuff. I think from, I've learned from you, Justin, that there's a lot of standardization of the AI. In other words, there's a a sort of conformity that is used in order to sculpt the input to deep learning. So you don't have to consider so much. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. And in fact, I, my, my intuition and my gut feel says that that's where a lot of the, the subject matter expertise is actually best used, right? If, if you can get, uh, let's say, let's keep running with the, the example of, of an image classifier. Uh, if you can get the best possible, most standard looking data, right? The most clean, most precise data, uh, the development of, of your AI system will be that much more simple, right? You can, you can reduce impacts of, you know, noise or color mismatch, lighting variations, um, all quote unquote in the input pipeline, meaning that you can, you can minimize and optimize uh, the implementation of, of your AI system. Yes. You know, so standardization, I guess I look at it as a, it, it reduces the contingencies, by decreasing the complexity of the problem that you're trying to achieve. You, you've standardized everything, if you will. You know, um, Sam, there, there are some other obstacles facing uh, development of complex AI. We talked about, for example, in Jeopardy of Watson repeating an incorrect answer. And those are covered very interestingly by a quote, I think, made popular by Donald Rumsfeld. I'd like you to talk about that for a second. Of course. This quote uh, is given by um, former State Secretary of Defense, uh, Donald Rumsfeld. And the quote here is, as we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know that there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. You know, the funny part about that quote is it sounds like double talk if you read it real quickly. But but if you sit down and examine it, it's really meaningful and applicable to the sort of thing that we're considering. Yes. Uh, so uh, we've we've taken kind of a, a very esoteric look at breaking down these uh, these known knowns and unknown knowns and, and et cetera, uh, and we've kind of defined lumped them into four categories. One of them is the known knowns. Uh, these are the tests that we have conducted on our design, and we have evaluated the result of them. And so these we're, we're very sure that these are correct knowns because we, we've actually done the testing. We've seen how it performs uh, and there's not much more to know about these particular uh, performances. Uh, the next would be the known unknowns. These are the tests that we have not conducted and we know that we have not conducted these tests because we, we haven't tested it. And so we, we are aware of our lack of knowledge uh, in these particular uh, environments and these particular circumstances. Uh, another type of these unknowns is the unknown knowns. That sounds like an oxymoron, but it, it, it isn't, <laughs> right? The, un, right? The unknown knowns. Okay, go ahead. Very correct. Yes. So uh, these unknown knowns are things that should be obvious, but have been overlooked uh, by the designer. And so going back to some of our examples that we mentioned in the previous podcast, uh, the example of IBM Watson repeating an incorrect answer that was given by another human contestant. This would be one of those unknown knowns where the designer uh, who is who is watching the, the contest would, you know, give themselves a facepalm because 
they know that they should have foreseen this particular contingency, uh, but they haven't. Um, and so these are contingencies that are obvious, but just have, have not been included. The final classification of the knowns and unknowns are the unknown unknowns. And these are, are the most troubling uh, situations and circumstances uh, because even a designer with uh, expertise in the domain, uh, they did not foresee uh, the possible outcome of this particular circumstance. And so these would be, for example, self-driving cars attempting to classify plastic bags uh, when they're moving and not moving. The uh, the designers probably would not facepalm uh, if they uh, if their car encounters a flying plastic bag that it is uh, unable to classify correctly because they they didn't foresee that and uh, uh, and it's not something that they should have foreseen that was extremely obvious. It was something that uh, just couldn't have been foreseen by a, by a designer with domain expertise. Fascinating. I guess the unknown unknowns is really what is a big problem. Right. So I think in the, the, the Oku example where incoming missiles were interpreted from the sun reflecting off of clouds, that was probably an unknown unknown that wasn't even considered in the design of Oku, which is unfortunate. Here's a counter argument. You know, we see highly complex systems that operate reliably. An example of that is you and me, we're human beings. We are put together. We are very complex, but we still seem to work well. Why? What is going on here? And how is that consistent with the theory that we've just laid out? Yes. So uh, I definitely agree that human beings are extremely complex uh, and extremely well well made. Um, and uh, I personally believe that this is because humans were created by a uh, creator with an extremely large depth of domain expertise who was able to <laughs> that 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 is a great phrase sam i appreciate right. our, our creator has a deep uh how did you put it a, a deep uh, knowledge deep of domain of yes. expertise that's great that's yes. funny so okay. our designer he he doesn't just have expertise of the domain he created the domain and that just has an infinite depth of foresight and predictiveness where he is able to design these incredibly complex systems and foresee all possible events that they will ever encounter uh, in in history or in the future um, and design a human being who is able to overcome and uh, adapt to a lot of these circumstances. You know, even so, I'm thinking of the design of human beings. We're still not perfect. There are some in our design. I don't know if they're unintended contingencies or not, but uh, things like COVID, for example, uh, you have an adverse effect to that. Our, we weren't designed to handle COVID, especially old people like me, or even something similar like uh, eating hemlock the way that um, Socrates <laughs> was killed. Um, we also see defects like in birth defects, uh, diseases such as cancer and things of that sort. Isn't this an example of contingencies which we would prefer not to see in the design of humans? Yes. So uh, the way I like to think about uh, how human beings fail in certain circumstances uh, falls into two categories. The first category is uh, that our creator intentionally did not design us to withstand this particular contingency. Uh, and this can come from a couple of reasons. One is when designing 
uh, a human being or any incredibly complex system. There are some uh, design trade-offs that exist where you can design a human being to be able to uh, resist the effects of eating hemlock, for example. Um, but the cost for doing that may be large. For example, you would need to include an entirely new metabolic pathway to uh, account for that particular uh, poison. And doing that for any number of poisons may just not be feasible in the size of a human body. And I, I don't claim to know about all the design uh, implications of making a human being, but I'm sure that there was some level of uh, intentionally not designing the human being to withstand some things uh, for, uh, for trade-off reasons. And then the other category of things that humans fail or the human design does not withstand uh, would be due to the fall. And, you know, I believe in, you know, the God of the Bible who designed us perfectly and we sinned and, and fell. And as a result of that fall, the perfect design that God has made was corrupted. And all of the contingencies that he has foreseen, some of the um, mitigating factors to avoid or overcome those contingencies may have been affected by uh, the corruption of the fall. And so that is where I think diseases and uh, stuff of that nature comes from, because uh, I don't I don't believe that those were intended pre-fall uh, for disease and death of that sort. Well, you know, what, what, whatever the cause, we do have something in design. Engineers know this called a Pareto trade-off. This is this is a trade-off between optimal performances. I worked my way through my master's degree as a disc jockey. And one of the things we used to do is we used to cut commercials. And sometimes the copy for the commercials came from the people that were sponsoring the commercials. And we had one, and I remember it because it's so hilarious. It was a place called Charlie's Fish Market. And at the time, there was an explosion in price of meat, you know, like, like pork and beef. And anyway, here was the copy. The copy was... Good meat ain't cheap, and cheap meat ain't good. So eat fish. That was, <laughs> that, that was the ad for Charlie's Fish Market. Now that explains a Pareto trade-off. Now, what what do we mean by that? There is there is in our world now. There's a trade-off in performance, and I'll give you an example with cars. Safe cars aren't cheap, and cheap cars aren't safe. That's just like Charlie's Fish Market ad, right? So what you have to do is you have to do a Pareto trade-off, a, a, a trade-off between being a cheap car and a safe car. If you want a safe car, drive around in a Humvee that has extra armor plating on it. And if you want to go down cheap, you know, get a little scooter and don't wear a helmet or something. But you, you have this entire gambit, and it turns out that Pareto trade-off says that for a certain price, there's the best safety that you can get in a car. And I think if the only criteria for buying a car was the safety and the price, that if you're like me, you would set the price and then see the the maximal safety that you can get. And so this is this is inherent in in design, at least that we experience today. I I, I agree with you, Sam. I don't think it was applicable before the fall, but certainly uh, today it is. So this is this is something that we are certainly stuck with. Okay. Any final thoughts? Um, I have a, a just a little bit more on how domain expertise can help in the design process. Okay. Um, so I did mention that domain expertise can be used to kind of reduce the number 
of tests that you need to perform on your design because uh, there are some circumstances that you don't really care how your design performs because you don't expect it to be put in that circumstance. But another way that domain expertise uh, can help in the design process is by forecasting what the result of a test would probably be. Um, and so this saves a lot of time in doing the actual physical testing because uh, the designer is able to very quickly look at an environment and say, well, I know that it'll perform well there, or I know that this particular aspect of the environment will cause it to perform poorly. And so that can reduce the number of tests that have to be physically performed because the, the uh, designer has enough domain expertise to know how it would perform. Yeah, the whole design thing is a big iteration, isn't it? Yes. You, you design, you test, and then you redesign. And that's the reason we talk about WD-40 and Formula 409. It was an iterative loop. And so not only does the design have to be well, that, for example, for AGI, the software engineer has to know what they're doing, but there is intelligent testing where you go out and you need to test the AGI and then do variations in order to improve the AGI uh, as you find out different places that it works. To build on that too, right? Testing and verification is its own area of subject matter expertise. I think one that's that's often overlooked. You know, it's it's funny. Uh, you know, to give everybody an example uh, of subject matter expertise. Uh, so I ordered a new Bronco last year. The car, not the horse. Correct. Yeah, okay. the horse probably would have shown up by now. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's very interesting because if you if you've followed along with the release of that vehicle, they had a a roof issue for all of the hard tops. Uh, and it turns out that they decided to replace all of the hard tops that were built or previously issued up to, I believe it was August. And when you uh, observe uh, kind of what happened and how it got to that scenario, it turns out that they had some type of QC that permitted faulty hardware to get into the loop. QC. Quality control. Quality control. Okay. And uh, you think about that, you're like, well, you know, from a testing perspective or a verification perspective, that's something that should have been caught, but maybe they just didn't know what to look for. You know, it, it ties very well into you know the testing expertise for an AGI system, right? You know, we talk about the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns being you know kind of you know major hurdles, right? And the unknown unknowns are the most dangerous kind because we we don't know that we don't know them, um, and it's one of those things that, uh, you know, when you start looking at verifying a system, you know, I, you could almost argue that requires more expertise than developing it in some cases. Ah. And so I think, I think that's going to be a topic that you see more and more of uh, as we continue to dive into these areas. And you continue to see more and more AI systems deployed in the real world, right? You, you get these scenarios like Uber where you, where you strike and kill a pedestrian and, and you know, pretty much every engineer is probably sitting there saying, well, okay, what are the, what are the circumstances that could have led to this, right? You know, it's such a complex system, you know, with, with so many different subject uh, expertise requirements that um, it, it quite, when you, when you look at it in an unbiased light, it's, it's quite a bit to overcome. And so I think kind of to, to tie things together, you know, AGI is, is becoming less uh, general and more specific, you know, and I think that's that's kind of where we'll see a lot of the direction head in the foreseeable future is, is a lot more specificity, kind of a step away from, from the, the general application. 
that seems to be where it's going. You know, even if we could overcome the exploding contingency problem, there are other obstacles that cast doubt on successful development of AGI. And I have to keep pounding this this home because this is one of the major uh, stances of the Bradley Center. In terms of duplicating humans, AI will never be creative, never understand, and will never be sentient. And we cover these topics on Mind Matters News. And this is a, th- these are additional obstacles, which I believe are not overcomable. Is that a word, overcomable? I think it is. <laughs> Insurmountable? Insurmountable. That's, that's a better word. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so the obstacles of designing complex AI can possibly overcome, but it will require a lot of expert engineering. Thank you, Sam and Justin. Uh, our guests today are PhD students Samuel Haug and Dr. Justin Bowie about obstacles of designing AGI. And so till next time on Mind Matters News, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.